All right, so the, the reason we're doing this throughout this month is these organizations are organizations that we already partner with, that we already work with, and, um, and we're just showing you guys that exactly what Michelle's dream for Trinity Life is, she said it, like, we're actually already doing that, and we get a chance to do that more in this year. So the four organizations, again, Deep Waters, Minsu presented on that last week. It's an organization that bridges the gap between the local church and the LGBTQ community. Um, there isn't an organization like this. Uh, this is, it's, Deep Waters is in seed form, and we get an opportunity to, to pour into it um, and to see this vision and dream become a reality in our city. Um, Toronto City Mission, K-Club, we're here meeting right now in this space because we started engaging the K-Club, uh, and they offered us super cheap rent. <laughs> I mean, they, for some reason... Uh, God's favor just went before us, and they love us. They, um, they love us, and we've seen so many kingdom wins. I'll talk about the K Club a little bit later in the sermon. Um, next week, we're gonna talk about. Uh, we're gonna have uh, probably Mike. I think is gonna do the interview, and um, we're gonna talk about Fight for Freedom. And this is an organization that uh, that reaches out to the sex trafficking community. Um, and such a, yeah, I'll let him, I won't steal his thunder. So, um, yeah, such an incredible organization, much needed in our city. So, Go Global is all about going global. We talked about Vietnam the first week. And then, how do we do that locally? And it begins locally. So, we're going to talk about that today. Um, so, if you've noticed, we've kind of had, like, global. We talked about your DNA as missions last week. This week, we're talking about local missions. Next week, we'll talk about social justice and uh, how we as a church uh, accomplish that and how the church accomplishes that. And we've been out of Deuteronomy. So I don't know what you know about Deuteronomy, but this is all I need you to know for our purposes this morning, that in the book of Deuteronomy, God is crafting a missionary people. Okay, so we've gone through, I talked about chapters one through four last week. We've been in chapter four. This is the missionary passage in the scriptures. For those of you who've grown up in church, you're like, wait, what about the Great Commission? Like, that's, that's the missionary passage. Yes, it is. Um, but Jesus comes off of this. Like, everything comes off of this. This, Deuteronomy 4, is the gateway for missions in the Bible. So we need to understand what's going on here. Um, so God is making a missionary people. I don't know, are you guys familiar with what's called the argument from beauty? This is a, um, do you have a mic? Okay, this is, sorry. Uh, the argument from beauty is, is basically, in essence, it is an argument from design for the existence of God. So there's all these philosophical arguments, the argument from beauty is one of those. Um, and, and basically it states that Last week we talked about brokenness and how the world is broken. Basically it states that uh, our world isn't just full of brokenness, but it's also full of beauty. Okay, and, and the beauty in our world points to a past reality where that beauty used to reign, and it no longer does. But it should point us to the existence of a God. Okay? Um, this is what it isn't. The argument from beauty isn't a, it doesn't prove God's existence. So, 
you'll hear someone like Richard Dawkins, who is renowned atheist, biologist, professor at Oxford, well, professor emeritus now, he's retired, um, ethologist. This guy is a super smart guy. Um, and uh, he's one of your four horsemen, one of your kind of uh, what some people call militant atheists. He, he kind of, he presents the argument from beauty like this. He says it's basically an argument that is easily kicked to the side because um, he, this is his reductionistic view of it. He says basically that um, step one, there's Beethoven, he has quartets, Shakespeare has his sonnets, um, and they're beautiful. Step two, if there were no God, then there would be no beauty. Step three, therefore there is a God. He's, he presents the argument from beauty like that. So Shakespeare writes sonnets, they're beautiful, so there is a God. That is not the argument from beauty. The argument from beauty is not uh, like that. He severely reduces it and then just dismisses it. Um, what it is is an argument that points to God. When we see something beautiful, we should say, or we think, wow, how did that get there? When we see a sunset, Emerson and I were coming home from school the other day, and there was a complete rainbow. I've never seen a complete rainbow, like from one end to the other, a complete bow. Like I've seen it go into the clouds and all that, but this was complete, and it was the most beautiful thing. Traffic stopped because people got out of their cars to take pictures. Why? Why would they do that? Because they thought it was beautiful, and they'd never seen anything like it before. Um, and then it was gone. Just in a blink of an eye, it was gone. Um, beauty is, uh, it, it was very, it was fleeting, right? So beauty doesn't prove that there is a God, but it points us to God, mainly because it helps us recognize that we need beauty to satisfy something in our soul. That beauty satisfies something within us, okay? Um, Let's, let's roll this clip. Yeah, let's do this. Let's do this now. So I'm about to show you. Yeah, we're going to roll this. You just, you guys prepare yourselves. So, okay, that's the second Nacho Libre clip I've shown. I cannot help that is a theologically rich movie, okay? So, if you haven't seen that movie in full, go, go watch it.
There's baptism, the gospel. There's all kinds of cool stuff in it. So um, you notice in this clip, Nacho, his argument to Escaletto is... Don't you want a little taste of the glory? <laughs> Who said I should have the mustache? Yeah, I need the mustache back, right? I need, I had Movember going on. I looked Hispanic. Um, he says, don't you want a little taste of the glory? And he's like, no. <laughs> but then he says, but we went 200 pesos. Now, 200 pesos is the equivalent of like 16 bucks. It's not a whole lot of money, but that draws him. The glory part doesn't draw him. Nacho is like um, enamored with something glorious and transcendent. And he's like, I just want to taste it and see what it tastes like. And Escaletto, he's just like, oh, I just want 200 pesos because I'm hungry. Um, and it's like 16 bucks. It's just going to be here and then gone. C.S. Lewis in, I can't believe I'm going from Nacho Libre to C.S. Lewis. But it's a good trend. There's, there's a segue here. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, in the, in a, he writes this book called The Weight of Glory. And in this book, if you've listened to all of the Trinity Life sermons before, you've probably heard me talk about this quote before. Um, he has this spectacular quote. He says that we are half-hearted creatures. We, as human beings, we're half-hearted. He says we're satisfied with fooling around with sex, ambition, uh, drinking, things that just satisfy our, our flesh and our desires, but that are fleeting, that are here today and gone tomorrow. He says that we're like an arrogant child satisfied with playing with mud pies in a slum when we can't imagine that what is offered to us is a holiday at the sea. He says we're far too easily pleased. We're like Escaletto. We're just like, give me the 200 pesos. When Nacho's, when, when God's saying, I'm giving you a taste of the glory, just like Nacho was saying. Like, the glory awaits us. Um, and this beauty, and the thing is, uh, beauty is difficult to grasp. But this is part of our mission. This is, this is our, our mission as a church. Um, to showcase God's glory, to showcase his beauty to the world around us. We talked about this a little bit last week. Um, but it's hard. And Lewis points this out. Uh, later on, he says, uh, it's hard to grasp, but we don't just want to see it like a rainbow, and it's here and then it's gone. We actually want to be in it. We want to experience it. We want to dive into it. He says, uh, we want to bathe in it. We want to actually become part of it. The problem is, like in nature, beauty is so fleeting, even in, in life. Um, uh, in, I mean, beauty, beauty really lasts. Like, I was beautiful when I was in my 20s. Now, I'm just old. <laughs> beauty's, beauty's fleeting. Um, like in nature, we have seasons and the, the leaves come and they go. We even think death is beautiful in nature sometimes. Um, we see, we see the leaves and, and we kind of, and we think that's beautiful. But, um, C.S. Lewis points out that uh, beauty is something that grabs us because it's something that we've been separated from. And we want to try to attain it again because it, it satisfies a spiritual desire in us. Um, and he says there's only one person that can do that. 
Because the weight of glory, the title of his book, is so immense on us that we can't handle glory. Like, Nacho says, I just want a taste of it. Because we can't handle the full weight of that. And there's only one person who did and who can, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only one who could handle the full weight of that glory. And it's in him that we see God's beauty and God's glory made known, and that we are known by God. So this is what we have to offer our city, a mission that is beautiful, a mission that, is, that points to God's glory. And I want you to hear this statement uh, and remember it as we go through. Our city is broken, and in our world that is broken around us, in the city that is broken around us, our mission is to display God's glory, is to display God's beauty to those around us, to the city around us, for these two things. And we'll see this in Deuteronomy 4, for the redemption of nations and for the restoration of creation. Okay? So the argument from beauty shouldn't refer to nature, it shouldn't refer to Beethoven's sonnets or, uh, or Shakespeare's sonnets or, or Beethoven's uh, quartets, it shouldn't refer to any of that. That's where Richard Dawkins has it wrong. He's saying that it refers to these things. The, the argument from beauty should refer to the church, should refer to the bride of Christ, should refer, refer to the body of Christ. We embody God's beauty to this world. We embody his glory since we are the body of Christ. Okay, that changes things. That changes the argument from beauty. So if I talk about what's beautiful, I don't need to point to the trees or a rainbow or Shakespeare or Beethoven. I need to point to the bride of Christ. And we're tasked with making the bride of Christ beautiful and pointing to God's glory. So um, Dostoevsky says this. He's one of the greatest novelists of all time, Russian author. He says in his book called The Idiot that beauty will save the world. And then he goes on elsewhere to say that, um, that the Holy Spirit is the direct seizure, the grasping of beauty. And that's why, that's why we can show that to our world. That's why we can show that to our city, because we, we embody the Holy Spirit. So that's a big task. Israel has a huge task here. We as a church have a huge task. How do we do that? How do we do that in our city? How do we do that in our worship gatherings? How do you, you do that at your workplaces? How do we do that in our schools? How do we do that in our neighborhoods? How do you do that with your family? How do you do that with your friends? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, Moses gives Israel three things that they can do while they're in the land to reflect God's beauty and his glory. Um, this is probably the only time I'm going to use alliteration in a three-point sermon. So uh, here we go. If you're taking notes, this is for you, Adam. Probably the only one taking notes. <laughs> um, and Oh, yeah, yeah. He's doodling. I think he's drawing stuff. <laughs> so um, the beauty of presence, the beauty of purpose, and the beauty of peculiarity or holiness. Okay, so we're going to see Israel do that here. The beauty of presence. So in verses 5 through 8, this is, Teresa read this beautifully this morning. Um, Israel is, Moses, remember, they're on the brink of entering the promised land. A land that was, that was, um, a land that was going to, that was given to them. That God had promised them hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand and was going to give to them at this point. But Israel 
is the fewest of all people. In Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 7, 7, uh, Moses points this out, or God points this out. He says, I didn't choose you guys for anything special about you. He's like, in fact, you're not special. <laughs> you are the fewest of all people, and that's why I chose you. That's why I love you. It's like, wow, thanks for the, thanks for the confidence booster there. Um, but it's in their weakness that God's power is made known. And so, I mean, think about this. Israel is, they're, they're a people of slaves. They were slaves for 400 years. Now they're people on the run. They, they're, they're a nomadic people. They are um, a homeless people. They're, they're poor. They're refugees. They're trying to immigrate into another place. Um, they're not uh, your cream of the crop. You know, they're not... They're, they're not uh, you know, this, this super, super powerful nation or anything. But God chooses them. And just by Israel being present in the land, God says he's going to manifest himself. He says, when you live the way I've instructed you to live, uh, when you abide by my instruction, you're going to make the people around you see you as a wise and understanding people. So they'll see you as wise and understanding. Just by the way you live just by you being present in the land. And he says two things here uh, when you get down to verse 8. He says uh, it's through these two things. It's through the nearness of God and it's through the justice of God. So the people will say this. They'll say, wow, I've never seen a nation that that has a God so near to them, so personal. Remember, these nations were all worshiping idols and chasing after chasing after idols, and we'll talk about that later. But they'll say, I've never, I, I never seen a nation like this. So it's God's nearness. They live like a people who had been in God's presence and are living in God's presence and can multiply God's presence. And that's the type of people they were living as. And then God's justice. They lived in a certain way. Now, what's, what's key about God's justice um, is that we don't impose this on others. If you notice in this passage, Moses said, hey, when you go in the land, don't make everybody live like you live. Don't impose this on everybody else. All you need to do is embody it. Okay? I think as a church in our city, sometimes we feel like we need to impose our values, our way of living on everybody else. That's just going to cause people to turn and go the other way. That's going to cause people to call us hypocrites. That's going to cause people to... um, be jaded against the church. Our task isn't to impose it on people. Our task is to embody it. And when we live it out, people see that. Okay? My, my job isn't to tell uh, people who are, who are uh, people who we would consider sinners, who the church is historically called sinners, isn't to tell them not to be in their sin. Okay? Isn't to condemn them. Isn't to judge them. Okay? We can do that in the body. We can talk about those things in the body because we've all committed to live a certain way, to live to, to, uh, according to God's instruction. But I can't impose God's instruction on, on my friends who are not believers. All I can do is live it before them and tell them why I live that way. My job isn't to make them like me. Okay? Jesus does that. The Spirit does that as I embody Him and live it out. Does that make sense? 
Okay? Um, the church gets a bad rap for imposing things, but we never see that in the mission of Israel here. The job isn't to impose it on, on the nations. It's, it's to embody it. So, um, and the promise here is that, they, that the nations, the people around them, will look and say, wow, they're wise and understanding people. Your God is so near to you. I want to know more of that. And they showcase God's glory that way. Um, we talked about the K-Club earlier. Uh, one of the things uh, we do in Regent Park is an Easter event. We've done it here at the K-Club. We start out doing it at the Regent Park Aquatic Center. Um, we started with just a couple families, a few volunteers, um, even some of you guys who are here who weren't kind of at Trinity Life at that time when we first started the church. I mean, came out to that and, and helped us. Um, and so we did this event. It was an indoor Easter egg event at the Regent Park Aquatic Center in this tiny room. I mean, the room is probably as big as the refreshment section. Well, it's bigger than that. Um, but not two, it's bigger than that. Two refreshment sections, yeah. Um, and so it's pretty small. We packed it out with like 150, 100, or 200 people in there in this one room. Um, what's amazing is this is a Christian event. Like, we didn't hide it. This is, we're celebrating Easter. We're sharing the gospel. We're talking about the love of Christ. Um, this is an event that is attended 75 to 80% by Muslims in the community. 75 to 80% of the people who come to this Christian Easter event that we do for this neighborhood, um, where we give out free stuff and just bless them and show the love of Christ, is attended by Muslims. That's, that's kind of crazy. Our city saw, we, so we did it two years in a row, and our city just saw that. We didn't impose that on our city. We didn't impose that on anybody. Our city just saw reconciliation happening, cultural reconciliation, uh, in some ways, religious reconciliation. They saw love happening. And so they contacted us and said, we want to partner with you in this event next year and give you stuff for it and support it. That's a kingdom win. That's what happens when we are just present, sharing the love of Christ, infusing the gospel in our city. They've never seen, they, they, they haven't seen a lot of that before, where a Christian organization is, is blessing Muslims in this way. Uh, Two groups that are historically against each other being reconciled. So that's the beauty and power of presence. So uh, the beauty of purpose. All right. Um, we're going to like bust through this, the next two, the next two points here. So uh, the beauty of purpose. Uh, purpose is beautiful. I mean, just think about it. When you see someone who's living... Uh, who's like task-focused or, or living uh, on mission or someone who knows what they want and is going to go get it. Um, like, that's admirable, right? Uh, Missy, whenever... <laughs> she has, like, this work mode where I can't touch her. Um, like, if I try to mess with her, she's like, I'm in work mode. Like, I'm trying to get stuff done here. But I admire that. I'm like, yes, like, this is, this is awesome. And I'm always... Uh, I want to play too much. Like, I just want to have fun. I'm the fun guy in our relationship. <laughs> but, uh, this is... <laughs> too many of you guys are going like this. <laughs> but, like, Missy has this work mode, and I love it. Like, it's so admirable because she's just in it, and she gets things done. 
Um, that's what the beauty of purpose is. It's knowing who you are and, and living and living that way. And that's what Israel has here. Two things about purpose. Um, it's generational. You see here, Moses says, teach these things to your children, teach them to your children's children, and teach them to the next generation because you're a part of something that is much greater than you. You've entered into something, into a storyline that was here before you and is greater than you, and you're, you're tasked with perpetuating this storyline into the future. And this storyline has been perpetuated for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And we're part of that. The church has entered into that. This is our story. This is our storyline. But it's not just generational, it's personal. Moses says here, you, 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 all throughout this passage, he says you over and over again. What's funny is that most of these people, when he says, you were at the mountain, you saw this, you were there when this happened, most of these people actually weren't physically there when this happened. But he talks to them like they were there because this is their story that they've entered into. Their parents were there, their grandparents were there. And this is their story as much as it was their parents and their grandparents' stories. And it's our stories as much as it was those who came before us. Okay? So, for instance, Trinity Life Church here in our city, we have entered into a storyline that was here before we were here. Our Easter event at the Aquatic Center, um, that didn't happen because of Trinity Life Church. That happened because God was also already moving in here with the gospel through other churches and organizations in our city. Okay? We've entered into something greater than us. I don't think Trinity Life Church is going gonna, is gonna, <coughs> is gonna to change the world. But I think the body of Christ is going to change the world. And we're part of the body uh, all across our city. There's churches that are meeting right now all across our city. And we've joined in that. We're, we've joined hands. Um, and we're together uh, ushering in the kingdom. Okay, So we need to realize that, yes, God is doing something here in us and among us, Trinity Life Church, we're part of something greater than that. And even the churches in our city, we're part of something even greater than that in our nation, and then even greater than that in the Western Hemisphere, and even greater than that in the world, okay? Um, and even greater than that uh, across the universe. So um, that's, that's this mission statement. I mean, it's discovering identity. It's discovering destiny in Christ. It's influencing our city. It's influencing our world. And our city is drawn by purpose. Our city is going to be drawn by that purpose. When we live out our identity and destiny in Christ, when we begin to influence the city and the world, because that is our destiny, but in the particular ways that you can do it, um, people are going to take notice. And they're going to see that beauty of purpose, and they're going to be drawn by God's beauty and His glory through it. The problem is, we're, we're not always comfortable or confident in our identity in Christ. Instead, um, we're placing our identity in how much money we make, our identity in our job, or identity in our family, identity in our friends, identity in our health and our sickness, our um, identity in, you name it, you name whatever sin, depression, anxiety, you name whatever sin, uh, you know, um, love of money or um, lust. We're placing our identity in, in these things. Um, 
and we're missing we're missing this whole statement here that it's in it's in Christ that we find our true our true identity. Um, and the problem is one of the reasons we're not as confident in doing that is um, it's because we compare ourselves too often. We compare ourselves, uh, and and. So there's two ways, two things, two ways of comparison here. One is we say, "Oh, I'm glad I'm not like that guy." Um, the Pharisees did this in the New Testament. I'm glad I'm not that tax collector. I'm glad I'm not that prostitute. I'm glad I'm not that sinner um, because I'm so much better than that. Um, the other way we do it, and this is probably the more common way, is I wish I was like that guy. I wish I was as intelligent. I wish I was as beautiful. I wish I was as successful. I wish I made as much money. I wish I had those things. I wish I was more like Mike. Just kidding. I wish just all these things. We compare ourselves. We compare ourselves to others, and it takes away from our identity. It rips us out of our identity in Christ. And what our identity? Those all those things. Those are lies of the enemy. You guys need to recognize that this morning. Those are lies of the enemy, and the enemy's purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy. To kill, steal, and destroy. And it's only in Christ that we can find our true identity. You are a son or daughter of the living God. And what he has created you to do in influencing our city and the world, he's created you to do in a specific way that I'm not going to do or that Missy isn't going to do or that Mindy isn't going to do but that you are going to do. And you have the ability to choose life or death in every decision. In every... Whether you say, I am... I wish I wasn't like that guy or I wish I was like that guy or when something happens, you have the ability to choose life or to choose death. And Moses presents these options to them. He presents it earlier on in the book, and then he caps it off at the end. Uh, Beginning of this chapter, he says, do these things so that you will live. And at the end he says, choose life or death, good or evil. Those options are always there before you. Uh, Henry Nouwen has this, he he has this awesome little, little quote. He says, choices make the difference. Um, and he gives this illustration. He says, two people can be in the same accident. And they can both be severely wounded, but one chooses to live out of bitterness, and one chooses to live out of gratitude that they're still alive. And both, both go on completely different paths that affect family, friends, the people around them. And one is on the path of death, and one is on the path of life just because of one simple choice. And we have that ability to choose life or death in every choice that comes our way. And that's the beauty of purpose, that we know who we are in Christ, that we can influence, and we are influencing, whether you realize it or not, the city and the world around us, and that we have the ability to choose life because we've been given it through Christ on the cross. And then the last thing is the beauty of peculiarity. Or the beauty of holiness. We talked about being a peculiar people a little bit last week, and and uh, 
Wendy hit on it again this morning, that the church, we shouldn't expect to look like the culture around us. Um, there's two distinctives for Israel here. One is a, a visual distinctive, and the other is an auditory uh, distinctive. They looked different from the culture and the city and the nation and the society around them. They just did, and they had to be okay with that. And Moses is saying, you need to be okay with this, that you are going to look different. And you need to welcome that, and you need to live in that. Because it's through your distinctiveness that the beauty and the glory of God is going to be made known, and that people are going to be attracted to how you're living and to what, uh, what you're doing in the city and to how you're worshiping. The danger is, Moses is very prophetic here, and he says, you can lose that distinctiveness fast. You can lose it by chasing after idols, um, or you can lose it by forgetting what God has done for you. And so he, he points that out for them uh, so, that, um, so that they're just ready for, for when they go into this really harsh atmosphere. It's hard to live in our city, guys. I mean, it's hard to live as the body of Christ, the pure, unadulterated body of Christ in our city. And Moses recognizes that for these people. Um, I love watching professional sports. It's probably one of my favorite things to do, just watching sports. Um, And so uh, I hate it, though, when I'm watching sports with people and they trash the players on the field, the court, the ice, whatever. Isaac's laughing because that's him. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but not, not, like, not like, oh, you stink. Um, but they trash him because they think they can do better. Because they don't realize this. Just take the NBA, for instance. We're in the middle of NBA season. Um, Raptors are doing awesome. I mean, rap show is going on. Uh, I, we the North, like all that, it's really hyped. Um, but, uh, and when you watch, <laughs> don't mention that. When you, <laughs> when you watch NBA, you're like, oh, they, they make it look so easy, right? Um, I mean, I could do a reverse dunk like Amir Johnson. Uh, I could, I could dribble down the court like DeMar DeRozan. <laughs> no. But they make it look so easy. The thing is, if you take one of them off of the court, like, say we're over at Underpass Park, and you take uh, DeMar DeRozan and you put him in Underpass Park, he looks like a monster in talent and size and ability because he's playing with guys like me and Simon and Bruce. He, he's not playing with Kyle Lowry and Amir Johnson. He's playing with chumps like us. Um, and he looks like this monster on the NBA court. Everyone's... Like, there's guys taller than him. There's guys more talented than him. He looks uh, average height for, for the NBA. But you put him on the court with us, and, and he's dominating, for sure. That was Israel among the nations. That is the church in our city. And I know what you're thinking. Is the church DeMar DeRozan or Simon and Bruce? <laughs> um, but... Israel was scared. They were scared to go in the land because they saw giants in the land. And Moses is saying, no, you're visibly distinctive. And, and there's something more than that. Um, they aren't the giants, he's saying. You're the giants. 
You're the one who is the God of the universe, not just the God of the universe, the God who created the universe on your side. He's like, don't be scared of their ability, their height, their cities. You are the giants. You are the great nation. You are God's people. And that's us. That's the church in our city. I know it doesn't look like that. I know sometimes when you're at work, you're like, how am I ever going to reach my coworker? How can I ever show him the truth and the glorious nature of the gospel and what Jesus has done for me? How am I going to reach my neighbor, my neighbor next door to me who has a broken marriage, who has a son that yells at her all the time, who um, uh, is just, it's just broken. How am I ever going to reach that? And when you stop living like we're cowering, like grasshoppers, like Israel thought they were, and start living like the great nation and people that we are, because we are God's people, the God of the universe, and he is with us. And Moses is reminding them of that. He says, God is with you. He's given you possession. This is not the enemy's city. This is God's city. And we get to live out in that truth. Moses says that you don't just have this visible distinctive, though. There's an audible distinction here. And this is the key. God speaks at the mountain. When you read this passage, God speaks here. And we see him speaking, and we never see his form. And Moses makes note of that. He says, you heard a voice. God spoke, and it was like thunder. But you didn't see him. We didn't see his form. And he, and he pits him against idols here. And verses 15 through 19, he talks about how idols, you guys are going to chase, don't chase after these idols. And he actually uh, what's cool in the scriptures is idols are talked about as, as deaf uh, and mute. They can't hear and they can't speak. But he highlights God here as the one who speaks to us. Like no other God that people worshipped uh, had done or does. God actually speaks audibly and they heard his voice. And he reminds them of that. And when he talks about idols here, he actually, it's really cool what he does. He actually goes from, um, he says, don't follow the image of a man. Don't follow the image of, and he goes down, he, he, he goes to like animals, fish, birds, um, anything that creeps on the earth, all the way to celestial bodies. In, in the creation account, in the beginning, God creates celestial bodies first, and he goes to all those other things, and then he goes to man. So what Moses does here when he talks about idols is he reverses the, the creation order. He says, when you worship an idol, when you chase after something that isn't God, the one who speaks to us, then you are in essence reversing creation. You are, you're, you're created not to worship something that was created, he's saying. You're actually the pinnacle. We are the pinnacle of creation. So we, there's, only, there's only one more thing we can worship, and that's God. He says, because we're up here, instead we've, flipped it, and we're worshiping these created things. I said in the beginning that um, our mission in this, in this city of, of just broken lives, in this world of brokenness, our mission is to showcase God's glory and his beauty. That we are the argument for beauty. And when we do that, we'll see nations reconciled to him and redeemed 
and we'll see creation restored. We restore creation by doing what Moses just said, and we flip that paradigm back in order. We restore creation by just being the church in the city. Uh, ben, why don't you guys come up? It's it's pretty cool. the uh, the word The word in Hebrew for that's used for good in the creation account uh, that's normally translated as good uh, can be translated as beautiful. And so when God says that He created animals and saw that it was good, it could actually say God created animals and He saw that it was beautiful. And when God says I created man and woman, and I saw that it was very good, he could say, I saw that it was very beautiful. So just realizing who we are in Christ, realizing your humanness, we don't realize we we strip away our humanness, our humanity, every time we chase after something that isn't God. And that detracts from this beauty and glory that God's created us to be for Him. He said that you are beautiful, and you can showcase that. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, that we are His masterpiece. That's the connotation of that word there, that we are His masterpiece. He's put us up in the gallery for all the world to see. Say, look, this is how we should be. And the awesome thing about that is, it's not just visible distinction, but we have a God who speaks. I don't know if, I don't know where you are, I don't know if you're a believer, if you've grown up in church, I don't know if this is your first time in service in a long time, uh, in a worship gathering, um, or if you still feel very distant from God. If you feel very distant from God this morning, it's not God. It's you. He came down for you. And all you need to do is open yourself up to Him. This cross behind me, it may seem weird that we have this cross in here. It's a symbol. It was a symbol of death in the ancient we see Christ take what was death and he chooses life. And he takes a symbol that for years was a symbol of death and makes it a symbol of life. Life for you and life for me. And God is calling you this morning. God is speaking to you this morning. And all you need to do is hear, trust, and obey. That was the mandate of the people. That's our mandate as a church, to hear God's voice, trust it enough to obey it in our city and point to his beauty and live out this argument from beauty that is supposed to be this bride of Christ that is so beautiful and so glorious. Let's stop making the bride of Christ ugly. Make it beautiful in our city. Father, thank you so much for just your goodness and your faithfulness. We fail you so often. We are so weak. We are so undeserving. But it's not up to us to say we are undeserving. 
because you've pronounced us as deserving of your glorious grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption and life and reconciliation and all these things that we have in you, Lord Jesus. Show us how to stop making the gospel bad news and to make it what it means, good news. And let us not be afraid to live out our faith in this city. We are the giants. And that may, that may come off as arrogant. But we no longer want to retreat from the city. We don't want to be arrogant either. We're not imposing. We're just embodying who you are, Lord Jesus. By the power of your spirit. sake of this city, for the sake of our friends and our family and our neighbors, and for the sake of your glory. We ask it in your name.